Hello and welcome to the NBA Next podcast presented by Track. I am Scott Allen and I'm joined by Keith Smith. We are here to talk about what is next financially in the NBA. Keith, you have posted the next series for our NBA expansion series on the expansion draft rules. So we're going to run through those and then we're going to talk about Bradley Beal and the Phoenix Suns a little bit here at the end. Uh, but with the expansion draft, we're going to go through each of your sections here. First off, timing of the expansion draft. So when can we expect an expansion draft to even happen once the league does say these are the teams or team that is going to be coming into the league next? Yeah, and this is the the kind of getting into the fun part of this, right? Like we talked about how long is it going to take for them to expand in the first one? And uh, you know, when could we maybe expect to see teams take the floor and all that? And now we get into how are these teams going to be built? And in expansion draft, if we go back to 2004, when the Charlotte Bobcats came in, uh, the, the draft, the expansion draft was scheduled to be held on June 22nd. There was a one day pushback built in where it could have been held on the 23rd. If the uh, NBA finals that year had gone to, a seventh game they didn't i think they ended in five if i remember correctly um but it was then the nba draft was june 24th so really there was one one day of kind of downtime in between the two so that's roughly what we'd be looking at when we see a lot of people do mock expansion drafts and the like the challenge with those is it's generally more in a quiet and content dry period uh, for the NBA. So that tends to be like a summertime type thing where it's like, all right, well, we're going to get into this in August. And then they do it with, well, these guys were just drafted and all these other things that happen. So what we're looking at now, um, if this was really going down, what we would see happen in this case in an expansion draft is everybody would know months and months and months in advance when it was going to be. They would end the season. They would do the expansion draft pretty much right away. And then they would go into the NBA draft and then the rest of the off season. So that's, that's a little bit of the timing wise. And that's why you don't see like rookies don't need to be protected because they haven't even been drafted yet. So you're, you're in a spot where you know, one season is wrapping up the expansion draft happens and there's no reason to believe this would be any different. Now, most years now they have about a week uh, built in, in between the end of the last day of possible day of the finals and um, the, the NBA draft. So it would probably happen somewhere in there. So what happens once they do know when the draft is going to happen, what is the time frame as far as protecting players and uh, anything else that can be protected? Yeah. So the, the protected list, this part is still, it's, it's a little nebulous because the NBA has never really publicized uh, this information. If we go all the way back to uh, when the Hornets and Heat came in and then the Magic and Timberwolves the following season, when those teams all came in uh, together, though, over the course of two years, then in 1995, when we had the Raptors and Grizzlies come in, and then in 2004, when the Bobcats came in, the NBA has never made those protected player lists public. Therefore, they've never told us this is the deadline for the teams to uh, complete their protected lists and, and get that information out there. And that's in part because I don't think back then they really wanted players to know, hey, you were left unprotected in the expansion draft and those kind of things. And there's 
some protection of the players from that side. Now, in today's world, we all know Woj and Shams will have those lists within a minute of them being due, and they'll be published and put out there, and everybody will see them. So I think there'll be a lot more forthcoming uh, now. And players, I think, they just get it, right? They're, They're not too, too upset. So to the best of what we've been able to figure out, it's usually the protected player list is due uh, to the expansion team or teams about a week ahead of the expansion draft. So that way they can start preparing for, all right, these are the guys we have our eyes on selecting in the expansion draft. This is where we're at. Now, the other piece of that too is the teams themselves, the existing teams, they also want to start preparing because something we'll get into probably in a little bit here is sometimes they make trades and agreements to uh, make trades where it is, hey, if you don't pick this guy or you do pick this guy or you don't pick a player from a list of X or whatever it is, um, you know, pick one of these three guys instead, uh, we'll trade you a pick and those kind of things. And that's something that happens as we get into it. Yeah. Can teams just do like cash and picks to say, don't even pick a player from our team. I know in some of the newer expansions, like the NWSL, they've done such where, you know, they'll send a player and picks and they, in exchange for complete protection from uh, having picked any players on a team. So, I mean, in reading your piece here, you said, you know, they have to have anywhere from picking from all teams up to 14. So is have you seen anything where, you know, teams have just said, I'll send you $2 million in cash plus these picks to not even pick any players off of our team? Yeah, they can't do cash only as far as I understand it, but they can do draft picks. And that has happened uh, fairly regularly. So what would happen is, um, we should cover this part of it first. The protected player list. So when a, when players are protected, um, teams can protect players who fit one of the following categories. So it's players under contract. It's players who are restricted free agents. Players who have a team or player option for the following season. Um, and that's it. They can protect those players. Any player who's a pretending, a p- pending unrestricted free agent cannot be protected. They, they, they're basically treated like they're just not on a roster and they go, don't go there. So if they have an option and how they treat that option is if that player is um, under like the option is still pending at the time of the expansion draft. Cause remember we're saying this is going to happen in the range of like June 23rd or 4th in that range, 23rd or 24th. Um, what would happen is their option may not be due until like June 29th, um, which is pretty regularly. That's the last day options can be picked up. So that's when their status is for that. So each team can protect up to eight players, but they can choose to protect less. If a team said, look, we really, we'd like you to take everybody. Um, we're, we're gonna, uh, um, you know, only protect one guy who we like. We've never really seen that. Most teams use um, as many as they can. Each team must expose at least one player. So if we were going into one of those situations, I know you and I have talked about this in the past. Uh, for a little bit there, it looked like the Lakers. We're going to have like everybody um, minus a couple guys available uh, coming off their roster with contracts ending. 
And then they ended up making a bunch of moves that that didn't happen. But if we got into a spot, each team has to expose at least one player. No, I don't know what they would do if they truly had, you know, 15 unrestricted free agents. I'm not sure how that would work. Um, It's also not fully clarified what happens with two-way players um, in this, in an expansion draft. I should note that um, here. So that's something that will be obviously defined ahead of time. Um, if two-way players are, are eligible, my guess is you treat them just like anybody else and that they can either be protected or not. A couple other things on protected players. If a restricted free agent is unprotected and is drafted, they automatically become an unrestricted free agent. And the only real rule attached to it is they can't re-sign with the original team. So if the Boston Celtics uh, leave a... Um, a restricted free agent unprotected that player is then selected by the new Seattle supersonics. Uh, what would happen is that player becomes an unrestricted free agent. The Sonics would have the full rights to the player, but the player cannot resign with Boston. There's all that. And then, as I mentioned, the player status as of the day of the draft is what determines whether they're in the draft or not. Um, with that as far as their player or team options. So that would all still be defined. Now, that's the long setup to answer your question. So with draft picks, what happens um, in the in the expansion draft? We have seen uh, situations, if we go back to the Bobcats, the Bobcats actually made um, two trades ahead of the draft um, that were, hey, pick this player and then we're going to compensate you with this. So the Bobcats uh, first trade they made, they were assigned the fourth overall pick. That was because at the time in 2004, the lottery only decided the uh, first three picks. The lottery now decides the first four picks, but the Bobcats were assigned the fourth overall pick. And what they did was they, um, they, they traded, um, the fourth overall pick and the 33rd overall pick to move up to get the second overall pick in the draft um, there. So the, uh, they, they ended up um, and then they picked uh predrag Drobniak um, from the Clippers. And that was how the Clippers made sure they didn't lose other guys they wanted. And then in that, with that, the draft picks, the Bobcats picked a Mecca Okafor, who ended up being a franchise mainstay for a number of years. And the Clippers ultimately ended up uh, selecting Sean Livingston and the Lionel Chalmers. The second trade they made was with the Phoenix Suns. The Phoenix Suns, uh, did, did that was a point where the Suns had a bunch of guys they didn't want to lose. So the Bobcats agreed to select Jahidi White uh, from the Suns. They got a future first round pick. That pick ended up conveying the next year in 2005 and Charlotte ended up drafting Sean May. Uh, If we go back to 95, the Grizzlies agreed to pick Rodney Dent from the Orlando Magic. The Magic at that point, they didn't want to lose a couple guys, namely, um, it's kind of funny, Daryl Armstrong ended up being a very good player for them and then Geert Hammink, who didn't amount to much, but the Magic didn't want to lose him. Uh, They would have lost one of the two of them. So the Grizzlies agreed to select Rodney Dent, and then they got a second-round pick uh, from Orlando. In Orlando, uh, excuse me, Vancouver ended up drafting Randy Livingston in that case. Going back to what these protected players, is there strategy by a team where – 
if they sign an extension in June, like we've seen quite a bit of the past few years where teams will sign those extensions when they can, is there strategy to that to where they get them under contract and then they're no longer, uh, you know, available? There isn't. Everybody's available. So kind of a lot of the like trade restriction rules and the like, those all come off the board. Those aren't part okay. of this. Um, so you can, if you were to, you know, sign a player like, like Jalen Brown, let's say there was an expansion draft happening this June, this coming June, uh, Jalen Brown, he can't be traded for a year because he's on the um, designated player. Um, he could be available in a, in an expansion draft. Now that would be an extreme, uh, change of fortunes, right? <laughs> Where a team would have drafted a guy and then kind of come around to like, ah, actually, we don't really, not drafted, but uh, extended a guy. And it was like, actually, that was a mistake. We don't want him. Um, and it, presumably the expansion team would be all over that because I would give them a star level guy uh, right out of the gate. But th- that can happen. You, you definitely can um, get into that position where it would be, Um, those players would be available. So one of the strategies that we've seen teams use, and I think could be more in vogue now moving forward, just as teams are more, uh, even if we go back, and it sounds crazy, but 20 years uh, since the Bobcats expansion draft, um, if we go back um, in that, um, they can go all the way into a couple places where it says um, they – yeah, I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase this. Teams weren't as cap conscious um, then as they are right now. Um, that's much more of a thing. So what I think we could see now is teams expose players who have maybe a contract that's not such great money. It's kind of undesirable. And they may try to uh, you know, incent a team. It's basically a form of a salary dump where they say to the expansion team, hey, draft player X, whose contract's kind of onerous right now, and then we'll give you a first round pick to do that. And then you pick the, you take the player, they come off the other team's books, they're clean off it and you go. And then the thing with the expansion teams, what they actually have the ability to do is they can then, let's say they took a player for 40 million, a $40 million player in the draft, probably by the time we have expansion, let's say a $50 million player. They take a player uh, there, they get the first round pick, they could then waive that player ahead of the season starting, and that money actually comes off their cap sheet. The player still gets paid. The money still counts towards the meeting the salary floor, but it comes off the cap sheet, so they'd be able to do other stuff. And that's a benefit that the expansion teams have that no other team has. It's almost like an amnesty clause in a way, um, that, that way. And why they do that is – Expansion teams often they load up their roster fully with, you know, in this case, probably about 15 players. And then they would look at it and say, all right, well, we've also drafted a couple guys. Maybe we signed a free agent or two. Now, what we don't want to do is be sitting here saying, man, we are now over our cap. And we'll talk about the cap in a little bit here, but we're way over our cap. So they allow them to, if, if, if it's, eh, we had a change of heart after we picked this guy to go. And I think you could see the teams use some of those, um, uh, like strategies to shed some salary to the expansion teams in ways that we have not previously seen happen. So how does the expansion draft order selected? I know, um, 
if there's multiple teams, it's usually a coin flip. Is that correct? Yep. So what they did with the Raptors and Grizzlies, and then if we did, obviously the Bobcats came in by themselves. So they came in and they just, they did their draft. They could have selected uh, up to uh, 29 players because there were 29 uh, teams. They they chose to um, stop at 19 players. Uh, they had to pick at least 14, um, but they, they, they ended up picking 19. But if we go back to, let's go to 1995 when the Raptors and Grizzlies came in, uh, they were basically what they did was they held a coin flip. Um, the Grizzlies won the coin flip and then the Grizzlies chose to have the higher draft pick in the 1995 NBA draft and Toronto got the first pick in the expansion draft. Uh, they, they also just as a thing, because we talked about how the Bobcats were in 2004, were limited to the fourth pick. The Raptors and Grizzlies were given the sixth and seventh overall picks. How they decided that would be the number, I, I don't know. I, I'm really not sure, but they gave them the sixth and seventh pick. They also, in addition, restricted the Grizzlies and Raptors. They were not allowed to win the draft lottery for their first four years in the league. They, they were um, limited to uh, picking no higher than second uh, in their first four years. In 1989, when the Wolves and Magic came in, uh, they, again, coin flipped. The Magic won the coin flip. The Magic chose to actually have the first pick in the expansion draft. So the Wolves got the higher pick in the 1989 draft. They were limited to the 10th and 11th overall picks. And in 88, the Hornets and Heat came in. They, the Heat, uh, excuse me, the Hornets won the coin toss. And they selected to have the higher pick in the NBA draft. So the Heat got the higher pick in the expansion draft, and they were uh, limited to the eighth and ninth overall picks in that draft. Once the draft order is set, uh, it's just a simple back and forth between the teams. It's not a snake draft. I know people are super into snake drafts because of fantasy sports and all that. So they went into um, this with its... uh, um, They went in, and it's just back and forth. Um, Once it starts, uh, each team you know, makes their picks. Um, they can, you know, they, they can forfeit picks if they want at a point. Uh, they do not have to pick in this case, 15 players from each team. My guess is they would, um, that would be very, um, uh, you know, or I guess highly unlikely if they did not. So then what happens is you pick players from their unprotected list. Each team can only lose one player. So again, if I'm the Chicago Bulls and I've exposed uh, um, a bunch of players here in the expansion draft, let's say five or six players, and I lose one, the remaining players are no longer eligible to be selected, and everybody is stays where they were uh, contract-wise with the Bulls. And the expansion team would get that player, and they move on. So and it's not each team can lose can pick one player from each other team. It's once you lose a player, you you're, you're essentially done. You can't lose any more players. If you're an existing team and you're an over the cap team and you lose a player, you actually, the, the league gives you a uh, trade trade exception uh, for the value of that player's um, salary. This doesn't apply to restricted free agents. This is only for players under contract. So if you lose a player who's got a $20 million contract, you're going to get a $20 million trade exception. Um, So they just keep going until one player has been selected from each team or the team say, we're done. We're no longer uh, picking any more players with that. 
in this case um i'll also just mention here too just because it was as i did the research on this it was uh interesting to learn um this is kind of morbid but this is the same process the league would use if they had to do what they call a restocking draft so this would be in the case of a tragedy um where a team uh, loses a minimum of five or more uh players um from being able to play uh again whether that be death dismemberment or permanent disability if they could not play anymore um in this situation the league can um, reserve the right to conduct a restocking draft and they use actually the same process as they do for an expansion draft to do that so there's no rhyme or reason where a team is put in the actual draft itself I mean, it's, it seems like it's all over the place. Fourth overall, then you got a 10th and 11th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th. I, um, it's it's weird that they don't have like a formulaic structure of where uh, an expansion team or teams would be dropped in on a draft. Yeah, I think they did it with the with the Bobcats and put them in fourth in the 2004 because the top three picks are decided by the lottery. Um, so I think that's why they ended up in that spot specifically was you can't win the lottery your first year. And it, for them, it was only a one year thing. Um, that's where they were dropped in. And then they placed into the lottery wherever they would have otherwise. Um, I, my guess is it was with the other teams. It was just a sense of, all right, this feels about like you're kind of going into the middle of the non uh, draft teams. And that's where you're going to place is kind of, put you in there and off we go uh with this but they definitely do uh you know basically say hey you don't get to come in and just immediately get great picks uh and then in the case of the raptors and grizzlies there was that additional um part of they couldn't pick they couldn't win the lottery and pick first overall in their first four uh nba drafts so yeah and that would be something that i assume there's nothing laid out specific to that that's something that's decided by the league and the board of governors as a condition of expansion and that's something that obviously the expansion teams would need to uh, you know acquiesce to and say okay we get it like we, we we fully understand where we're going with this so once the draft has happened what happens to the team as far as the cap i mean you've alluded to it a couple times with uh, you know, their cap sheet, and if they waive them, they're paying them, but they're not on their cap sheet. How, how does the cap sheet work for an expansion team once the draft has been conducted? Yeah, and in the next installment, we're going to get really deep into this. Like, I'm going to build out some mock uh, cap sheets for what an expansion team could look like. But just to give everybody an idea, um, expansion teams work under a reduced salary cap. Um, as well as a floor that is 90% of whatever their specific cap is. Um, so the 90% remains the same. It's just 90% of their cap. But the first uh, year that an expansion team comes in, they're basically two-thirds of whatever everybody else has. So if it's a $100 million cap, they would have roughly a $67 million cap uh, is what they would have to work under. It's 66.6% of whatever the league-wide salary cap is. Then in year two, let's just, because it's a nice round number, we'll use $100 million again. Um, they go up to 80% of the league-wide salary cap. So that would be an $80 million cap. And then in year three, everything normalizes and expansion teams are treated just like everybody else uh, in terms of the salary cap. 
Um, that is a change. Uh, when the Bobcats came in, they had an 80% cap in year one and a 90% cap in year two. My guess is that's because they were the only team that came in that year. And I think what they're protecting against by reducing the cap is, so imagine these teams go through the expansion draft. And let's say they took the lowest salary player uh, with every pick, or they took a bunch of guys and waived them. They could come in and say, all right, we've got you know where the salary cap is headed right now. We've got $140 million to spend. We're going to go sign two max free agents, and we'll fill it all out. And they could be you know one of those kind of um, – you know, top heavy star driven teams and be very, very good right out of the gate. So what they're trying to eliminate is, Hey, no, you got to take your lumps a little bit. So we're going to reduce the ability to do that. Um, We talked through what happens with a restricted free agent. If they're drafted, that player becomes unrestricted. If the team picks a player who has an option and then after the um, option year, or after, excuse me, after the expansion draft, that player declines their option or the team declines their option on them. Um, that player becomes an unrestricted free agent and they would basically uh, be on the books with a cap hold and the team would own their their uh, free agent rights um, there with that. And then we talked about what happens if they waive a player, which is a huge benefit to an expansion team in a way they could kind of become a salary clearing house for some other teams. Uh, they can you know, waive that player and that player's uh, salary comes immediately off their books. But again, the player still gets paid. The salary still counts towards the team's salary floor, but they just don't have a cap hit for that guy anymore. So that could be a major benefit uh, for them basically with this. And that's where we could see some of the fun things. One other thing I want to reference, there were two trades made when the Bobcats came in um, where they drafted players specifically with the idea of trading them uh, to another team. So they, they uh, Bobcats selected Zaza Pachulia from the Orlando Magic in uh, uh, in the expansion draft. And then Puch- that was with a prearranged trade where then they traded him to the Milwaukee Bucks um, on that day in between the expansion draft and the regular NBA draft. They traded him to, to the Bucks uh, for the 45th pick in that draft. And then they, they ended up drafting Bernard Robinson. And I'm sure most people were like, who? And that's because he didn't have much of an NBA impact. The Bobcats also picked Sasha, Pav- Sasha Pavlovich from the Utah Jazz and then traded him to the Cleveland Cavaliers uh, for a future first round pick. That pick could be a few years later in 2007. And Charlotte actually drafted Jared Dudley, which was kind of a, um, you know, a really great move for them because Dudley ended up being okay for them. And then he went on to have a very uh, good, long, productive uh, career. So that's, that's an interesting, uh, you know, approach too, where, you know, that can be a thing where it's like, Hey, pick this guy for us. Cause we really want him, and we can't maybe get him from team X, but if you get him, then we can make a trade later and, and those sorts of things. So uh, just, you know, a uh, lot of options here for expansion teams, a lot of fun ways they can build out their rosters. With the new CBA that came in with the rules, are expansion teams going to have to follow the you need to be to the salary floor by the beginning of the regular season or you're going to get dinged? Um, do we know that information yet? We don't, but I would assume they would. I, I would not um, 
I assume that that would work any differently. There is nothing that I have uh, discovered uh, combing through the CBA. And I, I basically, I've read every section of the CBA multiple times that has anything about expansion that says they're exempt from, from that. So I believe that they would end up right uh, in those same rules where if they're not on the, not uh, there by the start of the season, they're going to get a cap old foot. The reality is with a cap that is only two thirds of everybody else's, they'll get there because in the salary floor is 90% of that. So you're talking, you know, roughly what's that 60 ish percent of everybody else's salary floor. You're going to get there. That's not going to be a problem. Um, I wouldn't imagine. So I, I think we'll, we'll see them get there with, with very little ease. Um, but I do believe, you know, they'd be held to the same example of everybody else. So similar question with trades, since their year one and year two caps are adjusted down, does that mean all of the trade rules would still apply, but we're dealing with, uh, you know, their apron, if they, for some reason, made a big trade and ended up getting, you know, to the luxury tax or apron or anything like that, does everything just shift as far as trades are concerned with the math and matching for year one and two as well? Yep, everything would just be the same rules subject to everybody else what would be as far as aprons go or the tax or any of that stuff um interestingly enough it's the cap and the floor uh that are impacted they do not work under a lesser uh, luxury tax or apron or second apron uh those stay the same as a league wide again as far as i understand this and it is i should have noted this way earlier there is a note in the cba that says um basically this is what we've done but all this is subject to change through negotiation. So my guess is we could see some tweaking to all of these rules um, to some extent before um, it comes time for this to come into play because they're at least going to sit down, have conversations with the union of, hey, is there anything we need to adjust now that we're actually doing this? Because again, it will have been 20 years you know, plus because in order for it to only be 20 years, we'd have to be getting an expansion team this summer and that's certainly not coming. So they, they, they would, you know, they, we're going to have 20 plus years of, yeah, we should probably do this differently or whatever it is. So, so that'll be, uh, you know, something interesting that will all be obviously all over here for the next, uh, you know, several, um, you know, years as this evolves and comes. And, you know, again, uh, Adam Silver just said in an interview this week, uh, it's coming. Like he, he basically, you know, all but said, yeah, we're expanding. Like, and, and he again referenced directly Las Vegas and Seattle. So he then, you know, of course uh, qualified and clarified, no, uh, you know, no, nothing's done. There's been no secret meetings and promises and all this stuff. But I think everybody, everybody should by this point have an idea where that's all headed. All right. So what's next? For the expansion series, then you've alluded to a couple times, but let's formulae, formulaic it here. Yeah, we're going to do um, the next will be we're going to cover what the expansion uh, teams uh, um, cap sheet could look like just to give a real understanding of, hey, this is what a 66 point percent is 66 point six percent cap. Uh, could look like for a team so we'll we'll um really get into that uh fairly deeply um we'll, we'll use real world examples we are going to do uh, this round like teams are expanding this coming year um so we'll have a 
you know, we'll be able to use real world numbers as far as players and their salaries and the salary cap and all that stuff. Um, after that, I'm going to get into kind of the history of, you know, what have been some of the strategy? We'll go back over some of those trades that have been made. Um, what were the protected lists? I am working very, very hard to track down protected lists from at least the last couple of drafts, the the uh, Charlotte Bobcats expansion, then the Toronto Raptors, Vancouver Grizzlies expansion. And then we know what happened in the expansion drafts. So we'll look at how did those teams build out their rosters? You know, what did they look like um, for those teams? You know, well, what, what did they come out? And then it's a lot of after that, it'll be then what did they do from there? So we already said, right, the Bobcats came out of their expansion draft with 19 players. What did they do from there? Where Because those 19 guys obviously didn't all play and make their roster. So, you know, who did they waive? Who did they sign in free agency? What other trades did they make? What did it look like? And then again, a little more history. How long does it take before an expansion team is good? We've seen, I believe you would know far better than I. So I'll let you uh, tell me if I'm off. But the Las Vegas Golden Knights got very good very quickly. Um, Immediately. It, it, right? It was like right away. That's been- but that's because they, they adjusted the way how the expansion worked and it uh, worked gangbusters for that team because they were immediately good as opposed to usual expansion teams who it takes five, six years to yeah. get good. So that's what we want to do in the NBA is, you know, how long is it, is it realistic before the playoffs become real? What about winning a playoff series? What about becoming an actual real contender? Um, in the league, how long does it take historically for those teams? And you know, this is where people can uh, insert if they want, you know, for the Charlotte Hornets, we don't know, right? Because the Bobcats were never really good. They did make the playoffs, but yeah, you know, we're never real contenders. And then the Hornets haven't been our real contenders, but the Toronto Raptors, they won a title. So we'll get into, you know, some of the, how long did it take for all those things to happen? Then we're going to start the mock expansion draft process. And we'll probably, I imagine, run uh, several versions of this ahead of, you know, anything real where we'll, you know, I'll go through, I'll do all protected players. Um, we'll do a mock expansion draft. I may recruit a couple friends who love this stuff like I do to do it with us. And then we'll write it up on the site, um, you know, with, with the results and get, hey, what was your take? What was your strategy? Because, Otherwise, it's going to be my strategy every time, and that's probably not going to change too much as we go through it. But we may, um, you know, involve some others and get into it and say, "Hey, let's uh, let, let's let's run through this." And I can promise you, when we do it, it'll be a realistic exercise. It won't be one of these. Well, you know, we're doing it, and yeah, we're going to tweak the rules because it's more fun this way. Uh, we'll we'll do it based off of this is what will really happen. All right, great stuff, Keith. Looking forward to those uh, th- those mock drafts. Uh, you know, everyone loves mock everything. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see what you come up with and and, and where that goes. Uh, to finish off, we're going to look at Bradley Beal and the Phoenix Suns. The Phoenix Suns are currently, as of this recording, 12-9. and nine, uh, After a very slow start, they've sort of ramped up here much better than they had in the in the beginning of the season. However, Bradley Beal has missed 18 games due to back injury. Uh, He's played three games thus far where they've been uh, one win and two losses when he's played. And the one win was an overtime win by one point. So almost 0-3 when Beal has been playing. So with the amount of games that he's missed and, you know, the the Suns are – 
creeping up in the standings. I thought it would be a good time to just talk about what is left on Bradley Beal's contract because in the short term, it doesn't look great from you know the amount that they're paying and he's not playing. So what is remaining on his contract? Uh, is there a lot left in term or is it short for the Suns to, if this back injury continues to plague him? Yeah, there's a lot left in terms of years and a whole lot left in terms of dollars. <laughs> um, he is still owed because we'll count this year because for trade purposes, which is what this ends up really about or luxury tax purposes, uh, this year counts in full. He is owed $46.7 million this year, $50.2 million next season, $53.7 million the year after that. Then in 26-27, in year four, he has a $57.1 million player option, which I'm just going to go ahead and say he'll probably be picking that up. He turns 30, or turned 30, excuse me, um, yeah, this past June, so about six months ago, uh, he turned 30. So he will be uh, you know, 30 throughout the course of this season. He'll be 33 in that final season, given his age and his injury history. I'm pretty certain he's not going to forfeit $57.1 million. The only way I could see that coming is, let's say he does get back on the floor. This goes exceedingly well. Uh, with Phoenix, maybe what you see him do is, all right, I'll take less, but spread it out over the next few years or something like that. But just again, I'd said the individual years total. This is the bigger number four years, $207.7 million is what uh, he's owed. His no trade clause remains intact. He can still uh, exercise that no trade if he if Phoenix ever wanted to trade him and he didn't want to go. Um, so that remains. So a lot of stuff there to work around if you're the Suns for a guy so far for $46.7 million. You've gotten three games that were all kind of meh. They, they were okay. They weren't great. So that's a tricky spot. And it gets a little bit tougher to swallow next year because Devin Booker, $36 million this year, already a high salary. He kicks in on his uh, Supermax extension. That'll jump up to about projected right now, 49.7 million. Then potentially, you know, that'll push up over 50, which if it does, that'll give Phoenix three players in Booker, Beal, and Durant, Kevin Durant, that make oh, each make over $50 million uh, next season. And that's against a uh, salary cap line that projects to be, as of right now, 142 million. If Booker obviously goes up over 50, that means that'll go up. But those three guys alone will very likely push these Suns by themselves over the salary cap mark. So how do how do the Suns front office handle this? Do they just play the they have to play the long game here in hoping that he rehabs and he comes back for the latter half of the season and then can contribute or do they are they internally already scratching their head on why they did this trade and do we need to move off of Beal again if he allows it? Yeah, I mean, one, I would hope they knew going in that you're trading for an injury prone player. Uh, he was injury prone early in his career. He then went through a period where it was like, all right, he's been pretty healthy for the last couple of seasons. He's gone back to being a guy who misses time. So the back injury, that's a newer thing and that's a little worrisome. Uh, from that standpoint, but I, if you're the Suns, you got to know, yeah, this is kind of what we traded for. But to that point, 
you just write it out and you say, well, it is what it is. We're going to do the best we can to try to make this work here with Bradley Beal because we traded for him for a reason. Uh, you can't already be thinking about we got to get out of this because I don't know how they're going to. They don't have any draft picks to incentivize anybody to take him on in a trade. So that becomes a major challenge. Um, and then nobody's going to be chomping at the bit to say, yeah, Hey, give me, you know, well, you know, $200 million on my, my cap sheet for the next four seasons. Yeah. I'm all over that for a guy who can't really get on the floor. So if you're Phoenix, you, you let him heal up, you, you get him out on the floor for, you know, at this point, you're hoping maybe the final, let's see, we're, we're already 20 games into the season. So, you know, roughly, you know, you're probably saying let's try to get him on the floor for at least you know 40 of the final 60 games or so of the season. That I have him out there figured out would we'll be a Booker and Durant move forward with the team that we envisioned because there's really no other option. Maybe in the offseason you can kind of restart the process a little bit, but uh, as of right now, very hard to move a guy like Bradley Beal, and I don't even think it's under consideration. From a quick X's and O standpoint, when he was on the court, was he, was the chemistry there or was it like they've never played together before? Uh, how did it look? Um, I need to, I need to check and refresh. Cause I think Devin Booker may have also missed those games. So I got to okay. double check that to make sure that is correct. I don't think the three of them have played any games together. Um, I know in the first game, um, they beat the bulls now. Well, the Bulls are playing a little bit better right now, but uh, not not exactly a monumental um, thing there. Um, but it looked okay. You know, Beal was predictably uh, sluggish. He he was a little slow uh, to get going. Um, but Kevin Durant was was Kevin Durant, and they actually got a really good game out of Grayson Allen in that one. The next game that he played, that was a loss to the Lakers. It was a close game. And yeah, Booker did not play in that one either. I This game, I do remember now, Beal was much better offensively. Defensively, he was terrible. The Lakers went right at him repeatedly. Um, and that was a was a kind of a part of the um, uh, of the loss for Phoenix. And then the third game he played, they got beat by at home by the Thunder. Uh, this was a game where they went in, they were actually leading uh, into the um fourth quarter and then the thunder blew their doors off with a monster fourth quarter and in that game again booker did not play so we've not seen all three of them together and that was another one where beal was he was like his shot was a little off but again defensively he was a mess the thunder you know targeted him repeatedly shea gill just alexander i have very vivid memories of him basically just destroying them off the dribble and yeah the stats backed it up 35 points uh for for gilgis alexander in that game so so we haven't seen all three of them together yet so we don't fully know i will say booker uh when he has played he has really adopted the point guard mentality uh for phoenix he is really running the offense he's and it's a point guard in a the way James Harden kind of played point guard, where it's not, hey, I'm going to run 100 pick and rolls and just set everybody up and run the offense and all that. It's, hey, if I have the best shot to score, I'm going to go score, but I'll also be looking to get guys involved. Uh, Booker's done a really nice job making sure guys like Yusuf Nurkic are getting touches and staying uh, involved in the game plan. Eric Gordon, when he plays with him, he makes sure Gordon doesn't go, you know, 10 straight possessions without a quality touch on the offense 
offensive end and sees a shot. So Kevin Durant is obviously their primary scorer. That's what he does. That is his role. But Devin Booker does a really nice job, or at least has uh, to this point, of settling in to kind of be this team's point guard and then get them running that way. So I think what you're basically going to do with Bradley Beal, at least to start initially, is, hey, come in and be a you know souped-up version of what we're getting out of guys like Eric Gordon and Grayson Allen, like just be a better version of those guys as far as a shooter, scorer, off the dribble playmaker. Um, try to give us a little bit better version of that. Booker handles the playmaking. Durant's the primary guy. And we go from there. But until we see all three of them together, it's going to continue to be a work in progress. And uh, not even a work in progress, but something that is more theoretical uh, than anything. All right, Keith, next week, big NBA date in the calendar what does it refer to yeah so next friday on the 15th we are basically uh trade season opens up now teams can make trades right now we this is not a not a thing where it's like all right you know open up the gates uh you know and uh i was gonna say they're probably gonna age me i know you'll get this reference filene's basement and then you know my mom would go in there and tear other women to shreds trying to get deals um it's not gonna be like that that's not how this this works. Um, but what happens on the 15th is the vast majority of the players who were signed over the offseason, about 90% of those guys who signed contracts, if not more, become trade eligible. Um, so the, those guys who signed um, in the summertime, the, the restriction lifts, they're trade eligible, which just means the entire trade market opens up. Uh, I believe the total number of guys that will be trade eligible at that point, it's about 89% of the league or so. Then uh, a month later on January 15th, just about everybody else who's going to be eligible this year becomes eligible. A handful of guys whose eligibility will kick in a little later, closer to the trade deadline. But December 15th, um, that's roughly... um, uh, two months out to actually trade deadline is two months from tomorrow. We're recording this on Thursday, the 7th, the trade deadline is February 8th. Uh, so two months from tomorrow, but the 15th opens, uh, early trade season, as we call it, um, we'll get a real sense there of, all right, is anybody ready to make moves? Nobody had, nobody generally makes moves right away. Um, but we do tend to see one trade or so per year that goes down late in December, uh, often uh, maybe in the first week or so of January. Last year was the Rui Hachimura trade happened in early January. The year before that, I believe it was like a, it was a smaller trade like Rajon Rondo uh, get traded to the Cavaliers when they needed a guard badly. So we do tend to see some smaller trades, but at least things kind of get moving and there's a lot more of a, hey, this guy can actually be traded now, which then opens up the discussion points. Keith, why why do teams not make trades sooner uh, to get the chemistry going? You know, if they make a trade in December, I know the holidays and all of that, but I feel like from a, a roster construction standpoint, you'd want to make the deal sooner than later for the the chemistry and and getting into you know even if it's to flip them again later on. Why do teams not? pull the trigger earlier yeah that's a really good question i think some of it goes back to almost what we just talked about with like bradley beal um the suns haven't even seen it yet right so like in that example they don't even really know what they have there's a very much a belief in the nba you don't overreact and do much until you get into um 
get get into the you know after Christmas. Like basically, you take by the time you you get to Christmas, everybody's played in the range of twenty five to thirty games. So what you're gonna do by the time you get there is. All right, we're there. Now we have a real sense of what we are. This year's a little bit different and everything's a little wonky with the new in-season tournament. Um, and teams have kind of, all right, we kind of saw maybe what we might look like being tested in a playoff-like environment or whatever it may be. But so at this point, what we're really seeing with these teams is teams generally are, they're just reluctant to pull the trigger early because it becomes, uh, I want to kind of, Let's let's hang on. Let's let's hold tight here a little bit. Um, just let's make sure by the time we know. And then it's really that beginning part of January is when things really start to pick up. Um, one kind of kind of a key milestone on the NBA calendar a little bit is the G League showcase, um, which goes on right before Christmas. And one of the reasons that's kind of a milestone is that's the first time uh, since summer league that all the NBA executives are together in the same place. So what happens there is you, you get a couple guys sitting around and they're watching their fifth G league game of the day. And they just start talking like, Hey, what do you, what do you guys think you might be looking for? Uh, you know, in the trade market. And then it's, Oh yeah. You know, well, we're looking at this. Oh, you know, we're actually looking to get rid of a guard or whatever it may be. And then that sometimes that sparks some trade discussion in the like we often hear a lot of times it'll be, yeah, these teams have been talking since late December. And then if you really dive in, you find out those conversations started at the G League showcase. And that's what kind of got us moving in this direction. So they, that you, you'll see things just don't pick up right out of the gate because everybody's still being a little more, a little more cautious with let's make sure we really know what we've got with our roster right now. All right, what's next on your docket? Next contract, expansion, what, what do we got next for you? Yeah, I think we're going to run a next contract series on De'Aaron Fox. There's been some news about how he he turned down a pretty good chunk of change uh, from the Sacramento Kings in hopes of uh, landing one of those designated player extensions. So we'll explain what he turned down and what the differences are between what can he extend for right now today versus what could he extend for if he hits the designated player and those kind of things. So we'll get into some of that stuff uh, with that. We're going to have um, the more, more coming with the expansion. And then next week before the end of next week at the beginning of the trade season, um, I'll run, which I, I've done, I think the last two years, but at least we did it last mm-hmm. year, just some yep. guys to maybe keep an eye on uh, who could be moved. And some of them are the ones like, Full disclosure, Zach Levine will be in there because we've already heard Zach Levine's name. Um, but we'll talk a little bit about, you know, here's here's a few other guys to keep an eye on. And that may include things like, yeah, this was a guy who was a offseason signing that really hasn't worked out. And now he's buried on the team's bench. And, you know, we don't think we're going to see him get on the floor. And this may be a, a trade that goes down or something like that. So we'll get into all that sort of stuff uh, there. And then from there, it'll be. You know, we'll continue with expansion, next contract stuff, but eventually we're going to have trades to write about and all that because we're really, we're uh, after the transaction dead period of the end of the off season to the uh, open a trade season where we're full go now, uh, starting in about a week for about a two month period. Sounds great, Keith. Looking forward to it. Thanks again. And we will talk next week for Keith Smith. I am Scott Allen. Thanks for listening to the NBA Next Podcast. 